Buju Anin Tanse. Welcome to the Circles of Matriarchy podcast, where we invite Indigenous women entrepreneurs from all across Turtle Island to share their wisdom and stories and rematriate mentorship. My name is Ashley Richard, and I'm a proud Ojibwe, Metis, and Filipina woman. I am one of your co-hosts, and I'm joining from Treaty One territory. I'm the associate director of the National Indigenous Hub for the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. My role is to lead and be part of the co-creation of the future of an inclusive innovation ecosystem for Indigenous women entrepreneurs. Tanche, my name is Vanessa Lesfrance, and I am a mixed heritage Métis woman who currently resides on the beautiful, traditional, and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, and I am your other co-host. I work with the not-for-profit, the Indigenous Lift Collective, as the Lift Circle Lead, where we meet in circle every Wednesday to co-create the conditions for Indigenous women and gender-diverse entrepreneurs to thrive. Our circles are sacred, supportive, where we aim to love and lift one another and our businesses. And we figured Rematriating Mentorship was a perfect title when we discovered the origins of the word mentor. Did you know that in Greek mythology, the goddess of wisdom Athena came down to earth in the form of the king's advisor mentor to provide guidance to the king's son? We thought that was pretty cool. The Circles of Matriarchy podcast was inspired by learning circles we held throughout 2021, where we brought together diverse Indigenous women entrepreneurs to share their knowledge in a way that honors a reciprocal exchange of wisdom. And we are so excited to extend the knowledge shared from these learning circles in our 10-part podcast series. We have some incredible Indigenous women entrepreneurs that will be joining us to share their big matriarch energy. We can't wait to introduce you to today's guest. Buju Anin Tanse, and welcome to this episode of Circles of Matriarchy, the podcast where we rematriate mentorship with inspirational, fearless Indigenous women entrepreneurs and leaders from across Turtle Island. Our guest for this episode is Erin Brillen, the owner of Totem Design House. And during our live Circles of Matriarchy event last year, Erin shared with our circles uh, the importance of getting out of your own way and overcoming obstacles on your path to success. So we'll chat a little bit about that today. Um, You know, Erin, something that I really admire about you as, you know, a person, a leader and an entrepreneur is I've, I've heard you speak before on, you know, in different circles and in different panels. And I know I've seen this, you're not afraid Um, If all the panelists are saying one thing, you're not afraid to be that one panelist who just has a completely opposite opinion and you're really rooted in in your beliefs and your values. And I think that that's, you know, something that I look up to. So I'm really excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I couldn't agree more. So yes, to everything Ashley said, and also from my point of view, um, Erin, I love that you are running such uh, a successful and inspiring, I think, inspiring business on reserve. Um, I don't know how many Indigenous entrepreneurs are able to to run their business on reserve. So I think um, that's amazing. 
And I love how your your business is really a family affair because you work with your partner, Andy, uh, your brother, Jesse, and I believe even your family are models for, for your yeah. apparel. So um, yeah. to me, it doesn't get more Indigenous than that, right? Like just bringing yeah. in your whole family to work together. So um, I'm so excited to have you uh, as a guest on today's episode and uh, would love for you just to share a little bit more about you and your business. Well, my Haida name is Kalkajad. It's a name that I was given as the oldest granddaughter of the eldest matriarch in our clan. And Kalkajad means woman of ice. So I'm from the Haida nation and also from the Cree nation from my grandfather. And I feel really, really fortunate to have grown up with a really strong connection to my culture. I think I've been obsessed with my culture from a very young age and um, raised my kids culturally as well. Um, and so doing a business that has to do with my culture, I feel like every single aspect of work that I've ever done has always been in very deep connection to my culture. Um, so doing a business that is culturally oriented is um, just feels very natural to me. But at the same time, I have also felt like I've given back to the culture enough to feel like I don't feel bad commodifying culture in a way that is is in tune with our cultural values. I feel like there is a lot of other issues when it comes to indigenous entrepreneurs commodifying culture in a way where they haven't reconnected yet and, and marketing themselves as very culturally oriented when they may not be and things like that. So there, there is a lot of these sorts of issues creeping up in the indigenous business world. Um, but as someone who literally worked hands-on with youth at risk and um, in youth empowerment programs and health and wellness programs for Indigenous families and residential school healing workshops and like the multitude of different ways of giving back to my culture in terms of the healing and the um, growing to be healthier people in general, um, I'm now at a point where I don't have that sense of guilt of saying, oh, I'm making money off my culture because I'm like, listen, we still give back. It's still a really big part of what my business does. Totem Design House, um, because we operate on reserve, we hire all Indigenous people, we work with Indigenous people as much as possible, and we create um, a, a really amazing array of products, everything from fine art to apparel to jewelry and wellness products, and they all feature Northwest Coast Native art. But for me, the coolest aspect of the business is that we are a social enterprise. So right from before we were like when our very first year before we were profitable, I was giving back to different um, youth and elder projects. And so now each year we donate 10% of our profits back to Copper Legacy Indigenous Empowerment Society. Because I, for one, like I grew up doing a lot of personal development work because I recognized from a really young age that we inherited trauma from the intergenerational pains of residential schools and colonization and you know the, the effects of, of racism, which we still face today. And so I recognize that we had a lot of healing to do. I feel like for indigenous people to really succeed, the healing component has to be forefront. And so part of what we fund is um, like right now, one of the programs that Copper Legacy has um, helped get off the ground is an Indigenous Youth Suicide Prevention Program. And so that's really important to us because I feel like these are major issues that mainstream society can't necessarily help us with. That has to come from within. So the program was developed from the ground up 
by Indigenous people for Indigenous youth and it's in development with the youth that are involved and it's all based around culture. It's about reconnecting to those parts that were torn from us. And so these are all really key aspects to why I continue to do what we do and why we feel it's really important to give back. Um, because part of like, as we grow, we're able to give back more. And so that really fuels me more than anything. Wow. That so much to unpack there. And yeah, I, I hear that, um, everything you shared, Erin, especially, you know, as a person, as a Métis woman who I wasn't raised with my Métis, uh, heritage or culture, but seeing the, the intergenerational traumas, you still inherit that, right. Whether you're, you're raised with your, your culture or not. And mm-hmm. so just understanding that, um, I think is, is so pivotal and huge and to work towards, you know, self self-development. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I know that's something that you're so big and passionate about, um, going back to, to your business though, obviously culture and the social enterprise are two big things that are super important that, that, and I would say at the heart of Totem Design House. Um, can you just share a little bit more about, um, about your journey of just celebrating, uh, your culture and your heritage through your business? Um, and even maybe some of like the, the challenges you face, cause you said you used to feel a sense of guilt of commodifying, mm-hmm. um, uh, your culture. So if you could just share a little bit more about that? Well, I feel really fortunate that I was raised in the thriving world of Northwest Coast Native Art, like in in its sort of most pinnacle, glamorous time in Vancouver with all of the art show openings and the totem pole raisings. And we were raised um, quite closely with uh, Bill Reed, who's one of the most famous Haida artists. So we got access to a lot of really amazing events. So as I was growing up, I got to see how our art was revered all over the world. But I also got to see the downside where our art was was very exploited. And it, um, when I looked around and saw who was really mostly profiting from our art forms, it was non-Indigenous people. And in addition to that, I kept seeing this progression of having this really illustrious fine art, but then it was growing to be more trinketized. And so it was showing up on all manner of products. The designs were just being slapped on all types of mass produced products to fill up gift stores and tourist shops and stuff like that. And I thought, I always think to myself when I see, you know, less um, illustrious forms of our art being out there on the market, I always think, what would our ancestors think of this? Like, (laughs) I always think of that. And I think to myself, are we doing our ancestors proud by producing items that are like cheap, throwaway, crappy quality, made overseas, mass produced? Like, is that is that something that we should be doing? And my feeling is no, (laughs) it should be made as locally as possible. And it should be made as ecologically friendly as possible. It should be made with as many indigenous hands as possible. And so that's really how I set up the foundation of my business. Now, that being said, I've also found that to be one of the biggest struggles because everything is cheaper being made overseas. A lot of the materials that we want to work with, we cannot access locally. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, that's really my focus. But on the other hand, that's been one of my biggest challenges to stick to that as being my main, you know, we're coming from a cultural perspective. We're, We're working with indigenous values. We're decolonizing business operations, but it's also been a real challenge to stick to that. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it goes to show why it's important to um, support small business, even though they might not have the lowest prices, right? Because you're buying quality, you're buying stuff that's made locally, and you're buying things that are more often than not sustainably made and created, right? And so, um, yeah, we we were talking about this today when it comes to government procurement and um, uh, procuring from from different businesses. An Indigenous-owned business is never going to be the lowest bidder, right? Because there's so much effort on, um, on sustainability and keeping things, um, you know, local. Or the other thing yeah. is that we could be competitive, but we'd be doing it all the same way that the non-Indigenous people do it, which is then harming the environment. Yeah. And, and then you're doing more shipping. So it's a bigger carbon load and all those types of issues, which I, they weigh heavily on me. I mean, all those types of issues really weigh heavily on me. And I don't want to do business in a way that's going to be causing more environmental impact than it needs to. So, yeah. Right. And you want to feel good and, you know, proud about what, what it is that you're putting out there. And it, it is, it's a, it's a really vast gray area um, in, you know, where you're operating, you know, to really want to be, you know, strong and rooted in your morals and to, you know, there's, you're, you're really trying to achieve the, the quadruple bottom line where, you know, you need to have profit to have a successful business, but you also are really uh, cultural revitalization and empowerment is another key element. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe, well, I guess if you had um, to describe what you want your business legacy to be as an entrepreneur, what would you say? Um, I th- the thing that's the most important to me is how many other businesses can I empower through my business? Um, For me, it isn't about being the best or the biggest or making the most money. I want to know how many other people can I inspire to do their passion and to do their thing? Because in all honesty, if I look at the entire market for native art and I look at who's profiting from that, I want that whole market to be indigenous people whether it's the artists or the gallery owners or the producers of these products. Like I want to see that whole aspect of what we make and sell to be made by indigenous people. So I don't want to be the only one out there. And I, I look forward to having competition, more competition in this realm with other indigenous business owners, because I think there's room for all of us. And I really hope that what I'm doing can inspire other people to do what they want to do in this industry. And it just goes to show again, why it's important for, you know, especially items that are um, uh, incorporate like arts, like traditional art forms, why this needs to be owned and operated and produced by indigenous peoples, right? Because we're the best stewards of our own culture and of our own art. And, and um, mm-hmm. so who, who else, because if it's not going to be you, Erin, um, like you said, like it'll be some, some non-Indigenous person who's going to be trying to, to profit off of this. So yeah. Um, yeah so it definitely uh, needs to be um, something that's kept uh, uh, with and for Indigenous peoples to, to um, base their business on. Yeah, that reminds me of something, Erin, that you said once, and it really stuck with me. Uh, We're talking about, uh, you know, cultural appreciation versus appropriation and this idea of gatekeeping. And I guess the discussion was generally that gatekeeping Indigenous culture, people were not 
on board with that. We need to stop gatekeeping. And you had said some things are worth gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think about it in such a different way because Mm -hmm. that's so true what you said. Well, my perspective on that is that not everybody needs to know everything now because they want to know it. Because we had traditions where you had to prove your worthiness to take on the responsibility of this knowledge. Because it's not just about, I want to know everything and I want to know it now. That's a very Western mindset. Like within our cultures, you had to work your way up into say, say the various dance societies, for example. You started with a lower level dance society and you had to work your way up. And sometimes you never reached like the pinnacle of you know, the, the highest ranking dance society because it was really selected people who were chosen for that for a reason. And there's many aspects of our culture that have these sort of requirements. And it's because you have to show within yourself that you have the strength to carry those knowledge burdens. Because it, it, sometimes it's not always a gift. Sometimes it is a burden, right? So, <laughs> and a responsibility. So I think that's something that we sort of forget about. Knowledge isn't just knowledge. It's not just something you can pick up from a book and then say, oh, I'm going to hold that in my head. And now I know this. Because oftentimes with our culture, with that knowledge becomes a responsibility. And then you have to act and you have to care for the culture. And you have to give back in a way. And not everyone has the capacity to do that. So That's why I'm very opinionated on certain things like this, because I don't have a lot of opinions, but when I do, they're usually pretty (laughs) well-informed. And that's why I That's um that's part of the reason why I love your your socials, uh, Erin on on Totem Design House because I think you do such a beautiful job of like yeah I'm a business and we have these products but you it's also you have really inspiring content and also like informational content too so um to me you offer a lot of emotional labor to to educate folks especially non-indigenous folks on you know the difference between cultural appreciation versus appropriation and I think I, I saw an exchange um, with you and someone else online and um uh this lady she, she was non-indigenous she was talking about um wanting to see a, a longhouse or, or go into a longhouse and and you said you know that's not for everyone you know so um i love that you use your your social in um in a platform in a really powerful way yeah and i think there is a lot of basic knowledge that does need to be disseminated and that's literally what we try to do with our products too like we try to share as much cultural knowledge that can fit onto a little garment tag, like literally any way we can get information out there into the world. Um, there, because there is a lot that we can share that is open information and in, in the type of information that does also help bridge those gaps of knowledge between non-Indigenous and Indigenous folk. Because I think that our products are a good way to say, like, for example, would one of the cultural appropriation questions was, is it okay for a non-Indigenous person to wear a ribbon skirt? And my answer was like, why would they want to? Like, it, you know, <laughs> I don't really even really understand why. I love other cultural garb. I love looking at East Indian garments. And unless I was invited by somebody to an event where they said, yes, we want you to wear this, I wouldn't even think of wearing something that was outside of my culture, even though I have absolute reverence and love the aesthetics of it, love all those things. But unless I was invited specifically into that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that on for myself. So sometimes I wonder what the motivation is for people even wanting to. Yeah, you should tell that <laughs> too. And I feel like I get a little bit paranoid about it becoming a trend, right? Like, 
I yeah. don't know. So one of these sort of happy medium places is one of the things that I'm working on, including in my product line is a indigenous skirt that is sort of um, inspired by ribbon skirt, but not as sacred. Do you know what I mean? Like more like yeah. everyday ribbon skirt, but I don't even want to call it ribbon skirt. It's like an indigenous skirt, but it's for everybody. Do you Love know that. what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, like, let's bridge, like, let's find a happy medium here where it looks indigenous, but it's not as sacred as a ribbon skirt. It's not necessarily handmade by a, by a person, but it's something that everyone can wear. And I think there would be such a big demand for that because I do see for a lot of um, allies and, and, you know, folks who, who want to um, uh, support Indigenous businesses, and sometimes I notice there's a lot of hesitancy. Is this okay for me to buy? Should I wear this? Should I not wear this? So um, making products that are suitable for everyone, I think, you know, people will, will appreciate that and know that, no, this, is, this isn't appropriating, you're appreciating with this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we like. What we say is all the garments that we make are for everybody. When people ask me, can you make me regalia? I'm like a flat out. No, I don't make regalia for anyone outside my family because you have to know your crest. You have to have a specific crest design that's made by somebody from your tribe and all those things. Like there's all these details of things that I can't take on for other people, <laughs> but I can for my own family. Um, but all the products that we make on our website are for everybody. There is no boundaries there. It's definitely open. Ashley, I noticed where you're going to say something. It felt like you had. Oh, a no, I'm <laughs> just taking it all in. And yeah, I don't Taco, my cat is just dying to be on camera and I'm trying to just keep her at bay over here. <laughs> <laughs> she's yeah, so distracting for, for folks who can't see uh, uh ashley's uh cat taco keeps making a guest appearance cameo <laughs> biting on the headphone cords pawing at the microphone <laughs> <laughs> so uh erin you've already shared so much um wisdom uh and uh just sharing your experiences so far in just um a uh, short time we've had so far and I would also love to know, because this podcast and the, the event we had was to celebrate um, wisdom, especially women's wisdom, especially Indigenous women's um, wisdom. So we'd love to hear from you. What advice would you give to a new um, or emerging entrepreneur? Well, I'll touch on some of the points that I talked about in our previous session. Um, one of the mottos that I've carried with me since I was in high school was a, a phrase feel the fear, but do it anyways, because I literally feel like we will never feel like we're ready. We're, we don't ever feel ready to take the next step, no matter what it is in your life. Like we haven't gone through it. So how would we feel ready? But my thing is don't let the fear stop you. I've gotten to the point where fear is the same feeling to me as excitement because I'm not scared of anything anymore. I've taken enough risks and I've jumped enough times that I I actually don't feel fear anymore. I just feel excited. And it's really a fine line between those two feelings. If you really tune in when you're feeling fear, it is verging yes. on excitement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the only difference is that you trust yourself. That's literally the only difference. You trust that no matter what happens, you can handle it and you can walk through it. Even if it's like everything's burning down and you're like the Phoenix coming through the fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you get to a point where you recognize within yourself, you have the strength in there to walk through anything. And this isn't a trait that's unique to me. I think that everyone has it. They just haven't been reaffirmed in their environment enough times to know that, like to tune into that feeling and know that it's true for themselves too. Um, 
I was kind of like raised on Oprah, who was just like, you know, every day, <laughs> every day inspiration and good advice. I always joke that she is like my other mother because from the time I was 11, I watched her show after school and it really did shape my ability to trust myself and not have to, um, go through what a lot of women I feel go through with the imposter syndrome and all those types of issues where they don't feel like they're worthy enough to step into different roles. Um, so I, I feel like a, just feel the fear and it's not going to end the world. You're going to be able to get through it. Don't wait until you feel ready because you're just wasting time. Literally one of the biggest regrets that most people have is that they didn't do things sooner including things like divorce and all that. <laughs> Literally reading this article about what do divorce people wish that they had it done differently? And everyone said, I wish that I had it done it sooner. And I was like, okay. The okay. real tea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so why waste the time? Just go for it. Literally at the time that I started my business, there was another business owner that was a native artist that was doing clothing that was really slaying it. Like I loved everything that they were coming up with and they were doing such a good job that I literally thought to myself, is there enough room in the market for me to do what I wanted to do? Like I had had the idea to do this since 2004 to put my brother's designs on active wear and everyday clothing. And I just didn't have the ability to do it until when we did start doing it 10 years later. But I literally thought to myself, should I really try to do this right now when this other business is just killing it, like just doing so good. And I was so proud of all the work that was being done there. But then I thought to myself, our stuff is different. My brother's designs are crazy good. Like there's no way that we're not going to do well at this, even if we have some pretty hefty competition. And it turns out that that business petered out like it the owner just didn't have the stamina to really withstand all of the challenges that come with being an entrepreneur. And right around the same time that my business was amping up, theirs was kind of petering out. And, and I don't think that's a good thing. And I'm not, I'm not seeing that this is a good thing at all. I do wish that they had a state in the market, but what I feel like happens is that doors open when you really fully invest and go for something. And so in some ways it may have made it easier for me to get into the market when this was the dynamic that was going on. But like I said, I just want to reaffirm, I, I am really open to other competition, especially yeah. other indigenous people, because I don't feel like they're competition. And I have actually mm-hmm. helped other people create clothing lines and things like that too. So <laughs> that out there. I, and I love Aaron too, how you're like, oh, well, should I do it? There's a, like another, another business doing something similar. Um, and something I always remind myself of, but yeah, like say you're a writer or a dancer or a singer, whatever it is, there's millions of writers, there's millions of singers or dancers but no one does it like you right like we're all gifted certain talents and gifts and no one's going to create a business like you will Erin right and no one's going to do designs like like Andy or or Jesse and so just to lean into that um and in a previous conversation we had uh, with Janelle um on another episode that's why she really talked about you know knowing who you are right and leaning into that as an entrepreneur because then you'll be able to really um utilize your gifts and talents Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think the number one key to success is, is really working on your stamina and just continuing to be persistent because literally nothing in my business would have come to fruition if it was not for me being so persistent 
and diligent with following up and following through. Because if you're not the type of person who has, um, I had a, an issue initially being bold, being bold with requests, being bold with follow through on things. Like I used to be a little bit more passive if something didn't work out. I would be like, oh, they didn't get back to me or, you know, and just leave things. No, I'm not like that anymore. I'm like literally the person who will nag you until you do your job and get that done. And then it, I can move forward on my, you know, what it I mean? sounds, that sounds like big anti energy to me. <laughs> yeah. But if, if you are the type of person who, um, feels uncomfortable being persistent or being bold in those ways, this is a growing thing that you need to incorporate and don't feel that you don't have a voice because you have a goal you want to see those goals come to fruition and you're the driving force behind those goals. So you can't be dissuaded by people either not following up or not completing their job or not getting back to you in time. Um, I feel like that's a large part of what I do in order to accomplish any of my goals. And mm -hmm. I feel like we've done big things and we have a lot of big things on the way too, but none of it would happen if I was just going to lay back and say, oh, you know, they didn't get back to me. So I'm just going <laughs> to forget about that. It sounds like, yeah, you really, you take initiative and control of your own life and your own success and the direction of your business. And you do need to be fearless and jump in to do that. And, you know, I think we hear a lot about stories where, you know, people jump in, they're fearless and, you know, look at how great everything turned out. Has there ever been a time when you just jumped in and did something uh, and it just went sideways or did not work out. And, you know, not so much focused on, like, I don't want to hear the specific details around it if that did happen, but more so if it did happen, what did you do to bounce back or pivot? I literally went through a two year period of my life where I thought the universe was punishing me. Like every single thing wow. I worked towards was like the door was closing and the rug pulled out from under me. And I went through plan A, plan B, plan C. And now I knew that when I was in that, I call it like a void. I was like in the black hole void going like, what, what does the universe want from me? I'm doing all these things. I have these plans <laughs> and the universe is not cooperating. And it was, I, I was so perturbed during that time because I just thought, what, like, what do I do? I threw my hands in the air. But literally that was the thing that led me on the path to entrepreneurship because what I was trying to pursue was higher education. I was trying to get my master's degree. And, you know, I had a wicked GPA. I had like a 3.7 GPA. And why was I not being allowed into the programs that I wanted to get into? It was, it was preposterous as to why I was being denied. So at every turn, it was just like one obstacle after another that the door was being slammed in my face. But that's what led me to my partner, Andy. That's what led me to the doing a business instead of doing a degree and look at my life now, like my life is, is perfect. <laughs> it still has a million challenges and yet it, even the challenges are great. You know what I mean? So it, I think that when you go through times where it seems like nothing's working out, that also is for a reason. Mm -hmm. I hate saying that and makes me cringe even saying that, but there's truth in it, right? Sometimes what you want or what you think you want, isn't the right path. Yeah. We don't even know that until the right path is upon us. And then we're like, Oh, that's why that <laughs> there it is. And I think, yeah, I think it's a good reminder to, to know that even if you're facing so many no's, your yes is just around the corner, right? Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Your yes is going to be there. But so two years is a hard, hard 
like that was a long time. I let go of all of my friendships. Like I went through a major purging. Like I let go of my, my long-term relationship when I was married to the husband of my husband with my kids and, and all of my friendships. And I was literally in this void of being like celibate and single and like, just literally alone. (laughs) It was the strangest time. And yet I feel like that time was a total preparation for me. It was, it was the preparation that I needed, like emotionally, spiritually, everything to be where I am now. Mm, I love that. Um, and just want, wanting to loop back to, to something you, you shared earlier, which I think is so interesting. I think it'll be so valuable for our listeners. And for me too, this is something I struggle with in terms of, of that boldness. Cause you said, you know, I'm, you're, you're very comfortable being bold now, but you weren't always that way. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, what did it take for you to, to have enter into that? Just like fierceness, like just be strong and, um, and just really own, own your voice. I think there was, it was kind of like a, a way that I was kind of raised by my grandparents to have this humbleness and to never stick your neck out in a way that would be perceived as like asking for too much. Cause that would be not a humble way to be in the world. And then I was in the U S and I noticed how assertive people are in the U S because they're all very so goal oriented and networking oriented. And I had, um, a Navajo friend who, we went to this event. It was, it was like, I can't even remember what the event was. Um, but some of the guest speakers were talking about like living your best life sort of theme. And I wasn't invited to this event and I didn't have a ticket, but she brought me with her and she's like, Oh, don't worry. I'll get you in. And I was like, Oh, I was really uncomfortable with it. Cause I thought, Oh, this is so strange to just show up and be like, Hey, we're here and just let us in. Right. But that's what it felt like to me. And she was like, Aaron, she's like, you need to be more bold. Doors will open for you if you just show up, right? And I thought it was so presumptuous of me to show up without being invited and I didn't have a ticket. And she had some connection there though. She was being let in free. And then she's like, oh, and I'm here with my friend and she's Haida and she's from Canada. Oh, great, come on in. Yeah, doors just like flung open for us. Yes, you're here. And when we sat down in our seat, she just said to me like, you gotta be more bold. And I thought to myself, I always thought I was in certain ways I was because I don't have, um, I'm not necessarily a shy person, but I can be reserved, but yeah, her saying that to me really made me think to myself, like if I want something, I really do have to assert myself more Mm. and not feel ashamed in showing up in that way. And so that was really like the pivotal moment for me where I thought, okay, like you really have to just start being more bold in that way. But it wasn't until she kind of called me on it that I was like, oh, okay, this is true. <laughs> this is true. I think it's such valuable feedback and advice because I know that's something I grapple with and I suspect other other women do too. So um, yeah, thank you for sharing that because um, asking for what you need um, isn't something ingrained in so many people, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Especially so. in ways that it's not doing any harm. It didn't, it did the person who opened that door for us, no harm to, to do that for us. So it wasn't like we're asking for something that is out of alignment for anyone to, to do. Right. Totally. And I remember being in circle before and someone asked if anyone asked you for help or to, you know, for anything, would you help that person out? Everyone, all the women in the circle raised their hands. 
And then, then we asked, okay, who is here comfortable for asking for help? No one raised their hand. You know what I mean? So we need to start to, to have live in reciprocity that way um, to help when we can, but also ask for help because that's how we have balance. So yeah, the hyper-independent thing really happens when you have been raised in a way where you have had to take care of yourself. And I suffer from that immensely. And just like, I think one of my biggest life wounds is raising kids without any help. And when I asked for help, even from like my mother and close family friends, and just nobody was there to help. And that was really, really painful for me. But I still, to this day, I don't have an issue asking for help, but I'm no longer surprised when people don't step up. I just, I just go, okay, like I'll, I'll just do it. And I move on. And when people accuse me of being too independent, I'm like, well, that's my life. Like literally I have no problem with asking, but people have a really hard time showing up for me in that way. And that's like one of those weird life glitches that I just have sort of come to accept. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I just have to do it. It's, I can't rely on people in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. I think it's already, it's just so important that you're putting the ask and the request out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, then, you know, the, then the ball is in, it's in the community's court, you know, who, yeah. who can step up, who can step up and help you at that time. Yeah. Um, but that's one of those things too, where like, as you move into higher levels of success, you will also notice that people who never helped you when you were down here will then want access to your life and the benefits that come with it. And that's when I really started like letting go of friendships and stuff, because I was like such a helpful friend, such a giver, anything I could help, I would help. And then when I'd be like, Hey, can you help? No, I can't help. And I'd be like, over and over and over. And then I'd be like, okay, you don't have access to my life anymore. I come with benefits. Like (laughs) relationships with me come with non sexual (laughs) 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 I will, I will bring you along and include you in things and like get you invited to things and all of those types of things. So it, it, I have opened doors for so many people, but if you can't reciprocate with me, then we can't have a relationship. And that's a big boundary that I created and I'm not regretting it whatsoever. I, yeah, I love that. Um, so the theme, you know, the theme of the events and, you know, now the, the podcast is about, you know, what you're saying, you're building circles of matriarchy that honor, uh, that everybody has a piece of knowledge to bring. It's reciprocal. We're helping one another, but then also rematriating mentorship. And mm-hmm. you've shared so much, so many helpful things. Uh, I'm sure with our listeners who may be, you know, experienced, new, or just thinking about entrepreneurship, what does rematriating mentorship mean to Aaron? I love the whole concept of it because I always think to myself, how are things done traditionally? And we didn't learn from books and we didn't learn from classrooms. We learned from watching and learning and being under someone's wing and taking the time to really understand all the processes before we delve in. And I feel like that's a sort of important aspect to the business world too, is who have you looked to, to sort of understand what's necessary to to actually take action and I think that these types of podcasts are so essential because anytime there's any way that we can share 
the trial by fire that we've gone through, it helps save other people from having to go through the same challenges. And so if that is one way that I can give back, I'm so happy and passionate about doing that because I'm lucky. That's one of the privileges. Like I inherited all kinds of trauma and all of those intergenerational pains and totally dysfunctional family and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, my biggest um, benefit was that I did get to see successful Indigenous people. My Aunt Blanche, Blanche McDonald is still like the number one modeling um, or sorry, makeup artistry school and fashion design school. And my aunt founded that. So I got to see her amazing leadership um, being raised around Bill Reed, who is like the pinnacle of Haida art and known all around the world, um, seeing his challenges and struggles and successes. And so I've, I've been really lucky to be around very successful Indigenous people. So I get to see uh, both sides of it, right? The amazing successes, but also the amazing challenges too. Um, and so I like to share my own, my own struggles as well. I'm nowhere near as successful as those two, but <laughs> one day. <laughs> You'll be there soon, Erin. You'll be there soon. <laughs> well, Erin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and just being so open and just authentically you. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of what you shared today is very, it'll resonate with a lot. And I think a lot of people will find what you've shared very relatable. I mean, I know I have. Um, And I, before we end the episode, I want to make sure that um, if listeners want to keep up with you and what you're doing or what you're doing with your business, how can they find you online? Okay, we have a website called totemdesignhouse.com. We have, we're on all the social media channels. We're kind of new to TikTok, but we're having a lot of fun on that platform. We're at Totem Design on there. And Instagram, Facebook, Totem Design House. Um, We also have a YouTube channel where I share my podcast, where I also interview other Indigenous women that I find inspirational. And yeah, those are the main platforms, but... I hope you guys reach out. That'd be awesome. Yay. Yeah. Again, thank you so much, Sharon. You brought a uh, big anti-energy, I would say big matriarch energy actually. And uh, just being so, just so real with us and um, just sharing a little bit of your experience to help out uh, uh, upcoming entrepreneurs. Yeah. I'm always here to help out. So thanks for asking me and anytime you need me, give me a shout. Awesome. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to this episode. Uh, Be sure to tune in to the rest of the season where we're going to be speaking with even more amazing Indigenous women entrepreneurs. Our next couple of episodes are going to be around financial literacy and knowing your worth, pricing your products. So stay tuned and miigwech. Marci. Chi miigwech. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Circles of Matriarchy. Thank you to our co-hosts, Ashley Richard and Vanessa Lesperance, and to all of our valued guests. Circles of Matriarchy is co-created in partnership with the National Indigenous Hub of WEC and the Indigenous Lift Collective. Thank you to our sponsor for this season, the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. The Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub, or WEC for short, shares research and resources on women entrepreneurs in Canada. Made up of 10 regional hubs, WEC operates in both official languages and includes a network of over 250 organizations, reaching more than 100,000 women entrepreneurs. 
WEC is a part of the Government of Canada's Women Entrepreneurship Strategy that aims to increase women entrepreneurs' access to financing, talent, networks, and expertise. The WEC National Indigenous Hub was given the traditional name of Mekwamakwaikwe, which is Anishinaabe for Ice Bear Woman. Please subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and family. And be sure to tune in for another episode of Circles of Matriarchy. We'll see you next time.